Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing, guys? Ooh, so excited to get into this one, Adam. These films are, are, are fun to talk about, especially Revengeance. <laughs> there are you, Zach. I'm good. Here good to also to talk about Revengeance. <laughs> <laughs> We're all here for Revengeance. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, so we're, we're going to start off with obviously the first film that we watched uh, two weeks ago, and I'm probably going to mess up the pronunciation. Uh, Monsieur Hello's uh, Holiday. I'm not going to try the French the French title for it. Um, so this was a 1953 French comedy film uh, from Jacques Tati. Uh, this was my first Tati film. I don't know if you guys had seen a lot of Tati films. Maybe I just need to warm up to his style. Um, what did you guys think of this? Did you like it? Not like it? What were We'll start with Chris. What about you? Uh, yeah, I so I um, grew up watching Mr. Bean and uh, sort of found out about, out about Jack Tati. Just I love Mr. Bean. You know, when I was ten and eleven, it just it seemed it was just perfect. And so um, yeah, I found out about Jack Tati actually quite early. Uh, he was a huge influence on on Mr. Bean, and uh, so I've I've had this Criterion box that as soon as they put it out, uh, I, I picked it up and kind of been through most of the films, uh, exception of one or two, but I love it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to, to get into to this film a little bit. I think it's definitely, you know, one of those films that gets better on rewatch uh, for sure. But uh, what about you, Zach? Um, it's a little strange because, and I just put a little background for me. I'm not a big comedy fan. Um, if you go through any of my collection, I don't watch a lot of comedies. It's something they rarely ever really catch my attention. Um, and really, this one wasn't much different. Um, I, I felt okay about it. There were some segments I, I really enjoyed. Um, I did feel like it dragged a lot, and some of the, I, I don't I don't want to call them segments because that kind of makes it sound like an anthology, but it kind of was set up that way in its own way. Um, but I, I, there were moments I liked, and I and I think I can have the appreciation for it, but it didn't really make me feel like to go watch more of that type of film, I guess, if that makes sense. I think I, I, I'm definitely more in your camp, Zach, than, than Chris. <laughs> like, again, I, I, I'm not offended by it. It was it was absolutely fine. There was a lot of moments that were enjoyable. But again, and I, there's a term, the term I keep coming back to when I think of this film, and please don't put me on a stake. I don't mean this in a bad way at all. It's just the best way I can describe it. It's sort of like, um like all sizzle no steak or <laughs> all style no substance you know the film looks incredible uh, that's the one thing it the framing it is, is so good for so much of this film the framing the camera work the direction is all really really good but like there's no plot there's no development there's you know it's just it's jack tati basically do goofing off for you know an hour and a bit and you know that's fine and i'm glad you brought up mr bean because i was actually going to ask you guys if you would if mr bean had aired in the states i i know obviously chris you sort of grew up a bit in in the uk so that's probably where you got mr bean from do you know who mr bean is zach have you ever heard of mr bean uh yeah there's there were movies here i think there was one i don't know maybe 10 15 years ago maybe um and he played in rat race which i watched a lot as a kid oh yeah rowan Rowan atkinson the actor yeah it was rat race Uh, and funnily enough mr bean it was mr bean's holiday which no doubt got its title from this film as well because yeah. obviously they're both set in uh, at a French seaside town and obviously Mr. Bean is essentially uh, Mr. Hello as well. They're they're pretty much very similar characters. But yeah, for this one for me, and honestly, I just didn't really find it that funny. You know, we call it a comedy, but it, uh, it wasn't. It's, maybe it's just not my style, but I didn't really find it that funny. I didn't really laugh out loud. There was parts that I found humorous, but uh, for me film is very stylish and i cannot fault tati for that the film is very stylish in terms of its direction and its camera work it, it looks it looks really nice but there's just not enough there wasn't just enough meat on the bone for me to really sort of dig it all right so i'm gonna make my defense for tati okay <laughs> um and I'm, i'll be i'll be as concise as i can but here's the thing i just in a total coincidence um was recommended to see the illusionist which is a 2010 film uh, by the, the it was this, the film right after Triple to Belleville, if y'all remember that one, which was just fantastic. And so this was the follow-up film to that uh, from that director, Chaumet. And he was a lifelong fan of Tati and actually 
so Jacques Tati's name is Tati Chef. He's actually a Russian guy and, and shortened it to Jack Tati. And when he, uh, so this was a, a script that he had written but never made. Uh, and uh, so Chomet came 30 years later and made The Illusionist, which was the mind of Jacques Tati. And it's all about the dying artist, right? The, the uh, variety artist, the entertainer, the, the clown, the mimes, these, these old like forgotten forms of, of kind of entertainment that has moved on as the world's moved on. And so I, you know, I, I guess I just, there's a romantic notion for me around Tati because he, I could see in his like, he, you know, in his soul, in his heart, he wants to create this, this legacy of this old style, this kind of Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton style of, you know, a lot of setup going into the scenes. I, I think I would defend them as doing it better. So I'm definitely in the camp of like, their stuff is actually really laugh out loud funny. Whereas I agree with you, I don't think this is quite hilarious. I think it's more just kind of charming and and whimsical, um, you know. And and this was so, but but in that spirit of uh, of somebody who's really like painstakingly sorting through the prep and the, uh, you know, kind of getting these scenes ready to go. There's just one scene that really jumps out to me where he's sitting in a boat, and there's a can of paint next to the boat, <laughs> and I don't know if he has a string attached to the can or if he somehow was able to actually time the waves. But the can goes out and it comes back. And as soon as it comes back, his paintbrush is in there as if he doesn't know, like, you know, he's completely unaware. The character is completely unaware that it ever moved. And then at one point it's on the other side of the boat. And just when I think about this, this how much prep goes into a simple scene like that, um, it's just sort of a style of entertainment we don't really have anymore. And, you know, maybe y'all would argue for good reason <laughs> if it's not funny. Um, but but that's my defense of, of Jack Tati and his character Hulot is that he just he, he it kind of his in his spirit in his soul is this old style of entertainment and I, I kind of I appreciate it for for that and and for his you know defense of and preservation of that style of comedy so that's my defense of, of Hulot's holiday is it fits in that um, and it was his first film so you know he, there's probably some holes and gaps that that he got tighter as he went along as well I think playtime is is much more revered. Um, because he got better as a filmmaker. So I, um, I did sit down and read Roger Ebert cause he seemed to be very passionate about this movie. And he, he had a really, I loved his review. I sat down and read that this morning after I finished the movie, just cause I really felt like I was missing something, you know, I've seen the great reviews for it. And I think he summed it up. Well, I don't have his exact review up, but he kind of talked about that. It was almost like a nostalgia thing for him. Like the, the feeling of going to the beach. And I, I feel like that's really what this film is, I guess, trying to capture. And maybe it's part of me not really growing up going to the beach or stuff like that. And I, it doesn't quite capture it for me. But I do agree with you that it's a completely charming movie. Um, and there are great parts. I love the uh, part on the canoe where he ends up looking like a shark. I thought that was actually a pretty great part. Um, the tennis match was interesting. Um <laughs> It was, I mean, I was engaged in that part and really, and then, um, as you mentioned, Adam, I really did like the photography, um, the nighttime scenes, uh, there was one, I think it was a lighthouse. I'm actually starting to forget which part it was, but the, the light of the lighthouse and the, how well all the nighttime scenes, even though there's very few of them were shot, were always really good. Um, so there's definitely a lot to appreciate. It just didn't capture what I would have liked for it to, for me. Yeah, no, I, again, I, I have to feel like I have to um, sort of go back on what I said a little bit, but not really. I do massively respect Tati for, mm. for the film he created as a director, as, as a creator. Like, a lot of work went into this film. You can tell a lot of work went into it, as, as you were saying, Chris, with the timing of the gags and everything like that. Um, yeah, but there's just there's just not enough plot for me there to love it. Like, as we were saying, as you were saying, sorry, um, you know, in regards to comparisons to, say, Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd or less so Charlie Chaplin. He was he was less sort of uh, into that kind of humor. But um, like those films had really good plots going for it as well. You know, whereas this one is definitely more like an episode of Mr. Bean because it's just him flouncing around for. Well, well at least with, with an episode of Mr. Bean, you're in and out in 20 minutes. So, you, you know, it's there's there's that time for it's okay that he just sort of bounces around for 20 minutes because there's no real stakes involved, but it does, like, I was getting bored towards the end, I'm not going to lie, because I was thinking, okay, he set up this sort of film with all these colourful characters, and 
it's they're seemingly all sort of members of the bourgeoisie and maybe there's going to be some kind of political undertones here or something but it's just like nah these lads are just on holidays which speaking of that i did catch like and this was right i'd say on the half the last half of the film there were two parts where they do bring up like almost like this criticism of the bourgeoisie like one of them is in the background i only caught it because it's in the subtitles and then there's the guy who tries to flirt with the girl and he starts talking about it too is there is there more to that? Because I'm not. I don't have a lot of context for from, French from, era in 1953, so maybe I'm missing something. But like, I just thought it was, was kind of out of left field. Yeah, no. Like from what I was reading, that was definitely something. Because obviously this is all post-war, um, and it's all very about sort of rebuilding of the economy and and everything like that. So apparently there was a lot of subtext for it. I didn't get a whole lot of it. The sort of one that jumped out to me the most was the guy. He seemed like a stockbroker or some kind of businessman who was constantly being called into the phone. To mm-hmm. sort of take business meetings despite him being on holiday. That was the one that sort of jumped out the most at me as being, you know, some kind of commentary towards, you know, sort of the economy and sort of the booming after that. So even though these people are all on holiday, there's still sort of booming business going on. So from what I could, from what I read, I read I only did read a little bit about the film afterwards. Um there there definitely was that idea of whether it was just commentary or whether it was criticism of the economy and and the bourgeoisie that that there was definitely some thought put into those those particular characters and and those sort of little snippets of scenes where it would point to that yeah you know last thing i kind of have to to say on the film just in in the context of i think everything that's being said is that you know it tati has this interesting thing and you all see this throughout the rest of his films assuming you can you know, accept the challenge to go watch another one. But there's a sadness that that runs through all of his stuff, which I find really interesting. You know, even at the end of Hulot's Holiday, he's sitting alone with the kids because none of the the adults really sort of want it to be, uh, want anything to do with him. Um, And and there was this feeling of being an outsider and kind of being other than uh, the the, the mainstream society that that runs through a lot of his films in different ways. So I think, you know, as a, I don't think he was a fully like, uh, an overly joyous person, um, you know, or, or at least he had a sadness to him that came through in a lot of his his work. And I think it sort of snuck its way in here right at the end as well, even though it, it was a lighthearted kind of, you know, maybe charming, charming film. Now, Chris, uh, out of curiosity, since this was my first film of his, what would be your recommendation? If I'm not big on this, what would you recommend for me to get into him? Um, it's hard if you say you don't like comedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's tough. Um, I, I like certain comedies. Um, just I'm very picky about them. Yeah, I mean, I would say his shorts. So if on the channel right now are a lot of his short films on the Criterion channel. Um, and that might be great. I mean, just to, to Adam's point, if you don't like it, it's not a big investment. Um, and if you start to dig what, what he does, then I would check out Playtime is kind of the one that I always point people to is maybe one of his more ambitious ones. Okay. Um, um, you know, people are going to talk about Mononcal as well, but for me, Playtime is like sort of the from a you know great director doing a, his most ambitious work. It's probably Playtime. Okay, cool. I suppose last point on this then before we uh, sort of move on from it, uh, it was just a, a question that you had brought up, uh, Chris, and we were sort of talking about this beforehand. Who do we think the audience is for this film? Like, who would your target audience be? I, I think it's. I think it's really made for a, a period of time, right? I think it's made for French people coming out of the war, um, and and he's looking for sympathy from the folks that were frustrated with the way the war was handled, or frustrated with uh, maybe that kind of middle middle class um, that abandoned a lot of the uh, um, uh, you know workers working class in in France at that time. Yeah, and I think that's kind of an interesting thing. You know, we talk about a lot, like, all oh, these certain movies are timeless. That gets brought up with uh, some of Buster Keaton's and some of Charlie Chaplin's stuff. You know, you can still watch it today. And I think sometimes a lot of these type of movies do get overlooked. And, I mean, it makes sense. They're not, this isn't necessarily timeless, even if it did have something important to say. And I guess I'm not 100% sure I'm going with that. But it is interesting to watch because, you know, the, most of the stuff you see is just... That's, this is timeless. This can work for any generation. And it's kind of e- interesting to see this snapshot in, even if it didn't always work for me, it is nice to see this snapshot of France after World War II and kind of their hardships even in the into that point. And maybe, Adam, I'd, I'd like to ask you too, as, with regards to the summer holiday, that's, you know, certainly 
people in the U.S. will take a break during the summer, but I don't think there's really like a summer holiday in the way there is in Europe. Is that something that that is pretty in the psyche in in uh, from Ireland? Is that something that's you know people take advantage of? Yeah, certainly, especially especially growing up. Uh, I, I luckily enough, you know, I live twenty maybe thirty minutes in traffic from the beach, so you know I, those kind of scenes were ones you know I would have seen like. The layout of the village is very similar to the sort of beach town that I would have gone to growing up, um, which was which was kind of weird. Did you think I'd have maybe a bit of a nostalgia for this film seeing it? But I suppose maybe because I've been to it so much and <laughs> I can go to the beach any old time, it doesn't really have a nostalgia for me. But um, yeah, summer holidays and, you know, especially growing up in school and not so much now because obviously unless you're a teacher, summer holidays don't really exist anymore. <laughs> it's just kind of like a week off whenever you can take it. Uh, but yeah, growing up, definitely summer holidays were like a huge thing, especially down, you know, maybe smaller countries where you would pretty much go to the beach nearly any any sunny day, which in Ireland is not very common. But any sunny day in the summer, um, you would go to the beach and you would see sort of similar uh, scenes and everything like that. Like the one thing I did like about this film was that it's a piece of cinema that can really be enjoyed by all ages as well. Like I had mentioned this to a few guys in our discord that, you know, this is a kind of film where you can watch with your kids and you'll get different stuff out of it. I like obviously I don't have kids, but uh, I, I could still get that from watching this where, you know, you can enjoy the aspects of like, say if I had a hypothetical child that I was watching this with, I would obviously enjoy the, uh, you know, the, cin- the cinematography and the camera work and the direction. And, and obviously my kid would enjoy the little gags. So, you know, there's, I think, it's a. Uh, it's definitely uh, as you were saying. It's it's it is almost timeless, and it's sort of not for one particular generation. In one aspect, obviously, in another aspect, it very much is an indictment of that particular post-war generation. But I think for now, just watching it as a film, taking it at face value, it can be enjoyed by people of all ages, which I always think is nice. Because you can't always sit down and watch like Videodrome with your seven-year-old. So it's always nice. No, to I think that's fine. You well. can do that. <laughs> Spoken by two people that clearly don't have kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So excited to talk to you all about Collection Corner. So this is, depending on when you're listening, uh, this is the last one that we're filming in 2020. So what I wanted to do today, and I, and I checked with Adam and Zach ahead of time, uh, was to do a recap of my favorite pickups of 2020. Uh, because for me, this year was just crazy as, a, as somebody who tries to collect uh, Blu-rays as much as I can. It just felt like every weekend there was a special or a new box set or just something nuts that was going and very expensive. <laughs> so um, I'm, I got a, I, I put together a list because um, uh, there's just there was so much to talk about. Um, but here, here's the ones that for me were, were the favorite of 2020, and I'm gonna list them alphabetical by uh, label, <laughs> by boutique label because there, there's just way too much to talk about. So here we go. Um, so first of all, from Agfa, which if y'all don't know them, I, I think they might only be Region A, uh, but they put out just really low-budget films, uh, but but some fun ones. And they actually connected with a studio in Uganda called Wakaliwood and put out a, a, a box set of, or a small kind of box set of Wakaliwood super action movies, which is very exciting. Uh, Arbelos, I'm cheating a little bit. I bought it this year. It's not coming out till next year, but a nice, beautiful restoration of Seitan Tango. It's got to be top of any list. Um, Arrow Academy for me is a tie between Cinema Paradiso because it's one of my favorite films and then The Apartment because it's just a beautiful box set that they put out. Um, Arrow Video Proper is a limited edition of Battles Without Honor and Humanity, which if y'all haven't seen it, it's the Japanese Godfather series or the Godfather of Japan, however you want to frame that. And they put out just a fantastic, beautiful limited edition. there's a new label called Cauldron Films that I don't really, like not a particular release. They only have two so far, but I just want to bring attention to them because the work they're doing is great. Uh, Criterion has to be the essential Fellini. I'm just like, it's a beautiful set. And that's what I'm going to be going through next year. Uh, Kino Lorber, it's got to be the Buster Keaton uh, shorts box set that they have, uh, or uh, the Werner Herzog box set, both of which I found out about this year and, and quickly bought. Um, uh, coming around the corner here to the end, Rero Video, they have a, a, a Hanging for Django, which I'm excited about. I love that series. I love the, the Django series of uh, Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, Scream Factory, for me, it's, I'm a little bit torn on them as a label, to be honest, because some of the releases I feel like are just kind of thrown together. But the Friday the 13th box set is just legendary, beautiful, uh, perfect set for that. 
Um, and then uh, Severin put out the Al Adamson box set, uh, which is perfect. I've, I've already watched two or three there, and I've already seen a few going in. Just I can't believe those films got that treatment, so congrats to Severin for that. A um, uh, smaller label called Vestron Video put out Chopping Mall, which if you haven't seen it, everybody just stop what you're doing and watch Chopping Mall. It's fantastic as a cheesy kind of so bad it's good 80s horror film. And then the last one I could talk about, we could do start a whole other podcast just on Vinegar Syndrome. I'm really falling in love with this label. Like I just, I think they're perfect. I, I just everything. Uh, but as I had to break it down for the, I don't know, millions of viewers, what are we up to, Adam? Millions of viewers we have now, listeners of, of the podcast? Two, two billion, I think. Two billion? Yeah. Uh, you, you heard me talk about Action USA last week, so you know how excited I am for that. Um, but uh, otherwise, there's this little sleeper film called The Caller, which if you haven't seen it, it's wild. Like the last five minutes, they the whole movie, you're like, how can they possibly wrap this up? And they do it. They pull it off. And it's this wonderful little film with Malcolm McDowell. Uh, so those are the two for that. So there we go. There's my rundown of 2020. Nice. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of good pickups. <laughs> Thank you. I think you came into this segment a bit more prepared uh, than me and Zach with our one Absolutely. film we're going to talk about, I'd say. Uh, what, what about you, Zach? What was your, what was your favorite pickup this year? Um, I had a few. Uh, one of my, probably my favorite was the Columbia Classics one that they came out. It was their 4K box set. Came out with... Uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove, Lawrence of Arabia, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, Jerry Maguire, A League of Their Own, and Gandhi. Uh, it's a great set. I'm really excited to see what they do next. Um, I'm hoping they'll do Taxi Driver in the next one. Beautifully put together sets, and all the transfers on them look fantastic. Lawrence of Arabia, it was worth it. I, I'm not even going to lie. I paid like $110 for this. Just to have <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia on 4K. So, probably spent too much, but it's okay. Um, this didn't come out this year, uh, but I got the Battle Royale from Arrow um, that I found cheap. So pretty happy with that one. Uh, I got Jackie Brown from South Korea. Uh, I actually don't know the label on this one. It's not important. It's somewhere in South Korea. Um, A24 put out their Midsummer, uh, which is a beautiful package. It barely fits on my bookshelf, uh, but it really well put together. Wish it had special features or something, but... It's 4K of Midsummer, And the Friday 13th box set, which Chris brought up, great set. Uh, really glad I got my hands on it before it ends up being like $2,000 on eBay. <laughs> and this one's a little bit of a cheat, but this is my, I got a custom of uh, There Will Be Blood. Um, got it custom made for a steel book. Um, wow. but, so that's been my favorites for the year, at least from what I could see by glancing at my shelf. I'm so jealous of your Friday the 13th sets. I'm still looking at my Friday the 13th DVD collection that I got like, oh, it has to be at least 12 years ago now at this stage. <laughs> They're still does, in good uh, condition. Does it have all of them or do they have to split them up because of like rights? It has all of them apart from Jason Goes to Hell, which wasn't even available in Region B or Region 2, I suppose, for DVD. So I had to, I had to, this is, I'm talking about like 10 years ago now, I had to, ordering an import of it and buy a region-free DVD player, which were very cheap because it was only DVD, uh, just to watch that one film. And it doesn't have Freddy versus Jason either, but it has all of them up until then, which I didn't mind because, um, yeah, I'd never even really watched them before. I just wanted That's to have a lot set. of money to spend on Jason Goes to Hell. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, like I'm just 10 years ago on DVD. This was not a lot of money. Trust me. I think, I, picked it up on, I think my dad even picked it up on eBay for like, I don't know, I don't know, like 10 bucks or something like that. It, it was it was not a lot of money. Um, but I'm very jealous of your sets. Um, obviously, I wish we would get some kind of Region B release, but I, I assume rights are, are an issue with that. Um, so my favorite, well, definitely my favorite pickup of the year. I might talk about one or two more if they can spring into my head, but my, my absolute favorite pickup of the year um, was Criterion's release. And I don't. it definitely wasn't released this year as far as I'm aware, but I picked it up this year uh, of Kiristami's Coker Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um those films, I watched them, I watched all three pretty much back to back over the summer and I just, I fell in love with the films and Kiristami. They were my first Kiristami films after hearing so much about them. Uh, I just went out and bought the set because uh, the films are just incredible and I wanted to be able to own them. And the one thing that really blew me away, other than the films, obviously, is the actual packaging itself. I don't know if you guys own the Coker trilogy or if, you, or if you've ever seen the packaging. But uh, for viewers who don't know about the Coker trilogy, they're a very meta trilogy. 
each film is like a film within a film. So, you know, the first film is just, you know, a normal film. In the second film, they're going to find the child actor who was in the first film. And the third film is about making the second film. So it's a very meta trilogy. And the box set perfectly encapsulates that by having each disc in a digipack within another disc, almost like a Russian doll style packaging where each each disc is packed within another. So perfect packaging to perfectly encapsulate the trilogy. And that was my favorite pickup of the year uh, by far. Did have some other great ones. I I discovered Indicator this year uh, who put out some okay individual releases. I'm not really the biggest fan of individual releases, but their box sets are just knockouts. I picked up both the William Castle sets with all of his schlocky great films. I got the Sam Fuller at Columbia set, and I got really into Sam Fuller this year. And I talked about it on the last podcast, but uh, um, their their new Columbia Noir series that they're going to be putting out. I got volume one of that, and volume two will be out in February. Um, I've only actually managed to watch one film, and I'm not going to lie. Just as I just as I anticipated, it was bad, but um, <laughs> it was it was fun. It was fun, but it wasn't really a great film. Uh, so uh, I have big respect for Indicator as well. So definitely Indicator, some some Indicator buys and, and Coker Trilogy uh, were, were my favorite pickups of the year. Was uh, that... Just... Oh, okay, Chris, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I was just going to say with the Coker Trilogy, was that when you changed your avatar on Reddit to uh, Kirsami on the, on the criteria? I, I, changed that. I changed that so often. I changed that so it It was Kirsami for a while. And then I actually changed it when, the, when that Czech New Wave collection came out. Mm-hmm. I just I, I just bombed through all of those and then I changed it to Check New Wave for a while and then I was getting too many questions about Check New Wave off people and I didn't really know the answers. I'm like, I better change this to something else. I can't really have these people asking me these questions. I don't know the answers. Um, they're like asking for Rex and I'm like, just just go just go watch the oh, collection. Oh. That's what I did. Um, so that's when I changed it back to Kiristami because I'd much prefer someone ask me a question about his films then some right. random Czech New Wave films who I can't even remember the director's name, but I know the film was cool. Well, well, thank you for showing me that Coker trilogy so I can go blow some more money before Christmas. I appreciate uh, it. Honestly, it's so worth it. Just for the packaging alone, you know, you can watch the film, on, like you can watch all three of them on the channel if you just want to watch the films, but the packaging is just a knockout. I, I, didn't even, I wasn't even expecting it when I got it. I didn't really know what to expect of the packaging. And at first I was really confused when I opened the Digipack and it was like a fat digipack. And I'm like, there's only one film in here. And then it, and then it started to slide apart. And I'm like, oh, my God, the slide. I, I, I was very surprised and very happy. It was really, really great packaging. I like, cool. uh, I like when Criterion does that. Sorry, just real quick. I, I, this just a, that made me think of uh, uh, Criterion starting to do more Easter eggs in their releases. Um, if, if anybody listening has the Lone Wolf and Cub box set from Criterion, uh, and you haven't checked in the spine yet, do it. It's uh, I won't spoil it, but check in the spine of the box. It's a fun surprise. I, I wish I could right now, Chris. I, I'm I'm very annoyed that you brought up Lone, Lone Wolf and Cub <laughs> because I ordered it from Zavi on Black Friday, and it still ain't here. Uh, okay, there's no excuse. I mean, in the warehouse, probably like 20 it, miles from your house. <laughs> I've already emailed them. They're like, oh, we assume it's lost at this point. Here's your money back. And I'm like, oh, well, that's great. You gave, me back my, you gave me back my $25. Now I've got to go spend double that to actually buy the set again at full price. So, you know, thanks. Uh, thanks, Zavi. Um, I'm hoping it will still show up. They just said they assume it's lost. See, it's coming from the UK to Ireland. So things get a little bit dicey sometimes because um, especially the UK Postal Service is pretty dire. Uh, they're, they're Royal Mail. So once it gets to Ireland, it nearly always gets to me in, in great condition. It's getting it to Ireland is normally the problem. Um they said it was dispatched, and they said they said they assume it's lost. So they gave me my money back, but hey, it could maybe, still show up. maybe, maybe there'll be free. a Christmas miracle. Maybe there'll be a Christmas miracle, and I'll, and I'll get it for free. I'm if you want to put your money back here on the podcast, maybe somebody will send it to you. Sorry, I didn't catch that. If you want to put your home address here on the podcast, maybe somebody will send it to you. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting on Royal Mail to send me uh, the Devil's DVD. Um, so I'm oh. sure it'll never show up, but no. we're giving it a shot. <laughs> uh, look, I, I just keep your hope up. You never know. Or, or just pretend it's lost, like I'm going to do it with Lone Wolf, and then if it shows up, it's a great day. Well, I ordered it two weeks ago, and they said it could be here about March. I'm like, okay, well, I'll forget about it by then. What what label was that? Was that just a BFI release? BFI, or... yeah, oh, yeah, because the de- because Warner Brothers refuses to release the Devils uncut and on Blu-ray. They just refuse. It's their That's... 
Song of the South, basically. It's it's kind of crazy when you think that you know BFI will release it no problem. I don't. I, I've never seen the film, so I, I can't really tell, talk about what what's stopping it content wise. But I just think it's funny that BFI will release that uncut no problem, but the US no. Whereas, well, even BFI is not uncut. It's oh, actually it missing uh, the raping of Christ is the name of the scene, which oh, is God. probably oh. a big reason why oh, Warner Brothers wants nothing to do with it. Um, but they have oh. attempted to. It's about the most uncut you can get now. Um, that's not. <laughs> that doesn't look horrible. I was gonna say I'm just I'm just surprised that like that they'll show this, but yes, they won't allow an uncut release of Come and See. But now now do you talk about it? That's I can understand <laughs> why. The second you say the name of the scene, everybody's like, "Oh, okay, I got you." Yeah, Never mind. We, we, <laughs> we understand now. <laughs> All right, and now we're going to talk about Revengeance. Ooh, I, who I, wants I'm, to start? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I am starting. I'm, I'm okay, starting good, good. Revengeance, because I, I just need to get this film off my chest. Revengeance. Okay, I, I'm going to try and not be too overtly critical and i'm definitely going to try and not make this an explicit podcast this film <laughs> is so terrible and that's me and this is me being nice about it this film is so bad and i i really wanted to like it i was watching it i was i was going to get into it you know i was uh, the animation style as, as we'll i'm sure we'll talk about a bit more is very abrasive um it's definitely not a it's not a Disney film in terms of its animation quality. Now, I don't know enough about Bill Plimpton to really talk about that too much because for all I know, this is like his signature style. And if he changed it any way, there would be absolute uproar with all the people who live in their basements and watch these films all day. Because um, I'm sure pretty much his only fans. Um, but uh, for me, yeah, it's like the animation style is what it is. I'm not really going to, I'm not going to dump on that too much. You know, if that's your style, that's your style. Kudos to you for sticking to it. You know, fair play, all that. It's the writing for me of this film. The the writing and just the story is just dreadful. You know, it's it's the kind of film... I was watching it, I was thinking, this is kind of cool. It's kind of like, you know, maybe... I think, I think someone mentioned it in their review. It's sort of like a grindhouse. Kind of like if, you know, you'd expect maybe if this is a live action film, it'd be like produced by Quentin Tarantino that kind of style, like sort of a B-movie exploitation throwback. And, you know, I kind of got into it, and there's the awful ending, which I'll talk about at some point. But there's that awful ending, and it just left a really sour taste in my mouth. And I was kind of thinking about the film afterwards and just sort of rethinking the plot. And I just thought, like, this is just nonsense. It's just rubbish. It's, it's the kind of stuff you would write as, like, a 15-year-old. It's the kind of thing, like, some edgy YouTuber... And it looks like it was animated by a 15-year-old YouTuber as well. But again, it's kind of like, for me, it was kind of like something that just it was put together by a bunch of kids who thought they were being cool and edgy. And obviously, it's very immature. Um, yeah, for me, this is a big dud of a film. Um, I did not like the animation. I did not like the story. I especially did not like its awful, awful ending. Um, now I'm going to listen to you guys talk about how much you like it. And I'll just sit in the corner quiet now. Zach, you go first. I actually don't know what you think about it. Okay, um, so I'm going to take a little bit of your spot, Chris. Uh, I'm not going to exactly defend this film, but I definitely liked it a tad bit more than Adam did. Um, you were completely right. The story is terrible. It's uh, And, you know, I think I'll get through my issues with it. Uh, the, probably the biggest issue I have with it is there are obvious jokes in the film, and almost none of them land. None of them. Like, you can sit there and say, yeah, okay. Like, uh, I'll give the best example I can that just annoyed me. It got under my skin. Um, there's, like, two instances where the main character, Rossi, like, as quoted in the film, screams like a girl. And, okay, that's the joke. I got it. And then they pointed out, not once, but twice, that that was the joke. And it's like, I don't think that's how you write that, even though it's not a good joke anyway. But, okay, sure. But th the whole movie's kind of like that. Like, none of the jokes really land particularly. I, I guess the reason that I, at least at the end of it, didn't have a completely negative opinion of it by the end was it goes back to that 90s era of Ren and Stimpy or um, Rocco's Modern Life, which is, Rocco's Modern Life's definitely more polished, but it has that sort of charm, if you want to call it that, to it. Um, 
essentially it's just not as well written as either one of those cartoons were and that's really where it's going to fall apart um and i guess the closest comparison to slightly modern i can come up with was rob zombie released that uh the super haunted world of el super bisto i probably completely butchered that title but it's something around that where he tried to do the exact same thing and i would actually say this one's a little bit more successful in its own way just for at least feeling like a 90s cartoon and even the end which i'm sure we're going to talk about kind of a little bit of a controversial end um does feel like it'd be something pulled straight out of the 90s because people weren't quite as pc about that and they were kind of we don't look too great in the 90s when we talk about that sort of thing so it does sort of fit if you were just to say this came out in the 90s i would believe you cool well so here's the correct opinion of the film no (laughs) (laughs) no no no. um look everything y'all said i get uh and i'm not going to say that it was a masterpiece um and i'm I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail here from this so i'm not going to put my personal um address on, on the internet but uh, when Charlie Kaufman, I do, are you all familiar with him, the, the writer, director, of course, right? Yeah. When he made Synecdote New York, I was pissed. And I know people love it and it's his masterpiece, whatever. I was pissed. I hated it because I felt like he had this unbelievable mind. And like that was the product of him getting zero creative sort of boundaries and control. And I just thought it was a mess and I hate it. Um, so that's where I think I'm going to get a lot of hate mail because I know people think it's like his best film. We can talk about that next podcast if we want to watch that and talk about it. Because I haven't seen it in a long time. Maybe I like it. But the reason I'm talking about Synecdote New York here is because I think it's the same thing with Bill Plimpton. So Bill Plimpton was like famous for MTV. A lot of the the projects that he kind of his first earlier films uh, were had a lot more creative constraint. And I think he works well in that environment where there's other opinions kind of reining him in and not letting him go just full Plimpton, right? And in addition to that, you also had the introduction of Jim Lusion, which I don't really know much about him. And it did feel like it was a rookie script in that sense, right? Like, I've tried writing a script. It's awful. It's awful. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And I'm really glad it never got made. Um, it's, it's hard. Like, I think it takes, like, practice. And it feels like maybe this was his first one. So I think, like, I'm not going to argue with some of the points that y'all are making around it feeling, like, immature and stuff like that. But here's why I like it. If you take the Bill Plimpton style, basically what he's done throughout his sort of career is take regular everyday life and present it in like the most extreme kind of caricature version of that thing, right? Like that's sort of his style is he's going to say like, if you're going to have two people eating dinner, they're going to wind up eating like each other's foot or like instead of eating like a piece of ham, they're going to actually take a bite out of the pig or like whatever. Like he's just, he's, he's going to go for like whatever's in, and you know, what you would expect from a normal scene and, and like really make it this kind of extreme version of it. Right. That's his sense of humor. And so I think it did, it was consistent with his style, with the characters. And like, he had a lot of these kind of, you know, cliches of sort of like either, I hate to use the word noir because you know, that gives it a certain like weight, weightiness that I don't think y'all would, attached to this film but like it has you know like he 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 goes after these characters of like a crime film and he has like the extreme version of them right uh, here is represented and i i i liked it like I, i'm not going to defend it say it was a masterpiece but i liked it in the sense that it was a plimpton style film good animation for again for his style i think good voiceovers like i had no problem with the voiceovers um you know uh, and 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 you know it, it felt like something from that era and i think this is where i'm going to defend him and this is where i think we might disagree the most and that's totally fine but i think the ending are we is it okay if we spoil it like can we talk about the ending oh i'm going to talk about the ending okay (laughs) i i think (laughs) that's awesome i think the ending was not plimpton saying it's bad to be gay as a man i think he was saying like the characters in this film that are straight out of the 90s, macho WWE style, like, characters would have an issue if they found out that their hero, their, like, testosterone-driven hero had a tape where he was playing, like, dancing around in sort of, like, a feminine way with this with this guy who was supposed to be, 
another sort of macho like boss that was driving like the puppet master sort of for this whole movement. Uh, and, and he was sort of, you know, he, he created that ending to go in keeping with the feel with, with that feeling of how they would respond to that. Um, and he doesn't mind creating controversy because he finances these films through Kickstarter and he can kind of be a little bit edgy and a little bit, you know, uncomfortable. And the last thing I'll say, because I, you know, want, this is open discussion here, but like, maybe he got stuck in the nineties a little bit. Like that's where he was successful. That's where he was kind of on top. And like, maybe he never matured out of it. Like that's, that's certainly a possibility here too. You know, one thing um, that I kind of felt the whole time I was watching this, just because there's kind of like these weird plot points in it. Like there's that cult, the entire, like, what is, what does that take up? Like 10, 12 minutes of the whole movie is like about this, this cult. It almost felt like this was supposed to be like a pilot movie or pilot episode or two or three episodes in a season and it was almost like well i don't have the money to do that let me just slice all this together get this whole arc done because it does have an arc it has a beginning middle and end it's just kind of got like weird moments where you're like oh well we need to fill in episodes let's just have them get captured by a cult at at this moment and they were just kind of like well it's animated it's done throw it in there it'll somehow make some sort of sense at the end but that's kind of the feeling I got. And I think that's why some of it kind of feels a little too long. Like I actually agree with a lot of what you're saying, uh, Chris, I think it really just comes down to a lot of the jokes, not landing for me. Like I wish they did, but I do feel like it's a little too long and that's kind of saying something when the movie's what 70 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like it should have been like 40 or 45 and I don't think I would have felt as exhausted by the end of it. And I think I actually probably would have had a little bit more of a positive feeling towards the end if it was like a 45 minute short. So so what you're basically saying is because of all these extra plot points, it's basically like a bad Mulholland drive. Yeah, I would <laughs> say that's kind of accurate. Yeah, like, again, just on just on the ending, I, I completely see where you're coming from in regards to, you know, subverting that 90s macho man sort of vibe. I think for me, what made what made it homophobic and what made it offensive and extremely immature was not necessarily the reveal but its execution and its reaction by other characters that would just be sort of standby characters so like the one part that's really like okay you know if you're gonna try and show a macho man as being homosexual you're gonna try and give him the antithesis you're gonna try and give make him the most effeminate homosexual possible okay I don't agree with what you're doing, but I see where you're coming from with this. But at what point do you need to have the newscaster say, we're going to turn this sex tape off now because I don't want to get sick? You know, that's where that's where the line comes in for me, where that's that's um, that's just unnecessary. You know, you're you're pointing towards maybe this being so, you know, like sickening. And this is just a newscaster. They're not involved in the plot. You know, and they're saying, oh, we're going to turn off this this gay sex tape now because I don't want to puke on live air. You know, that's that for me is where it became more of an issue. Like, I, I see what you mean about, you know, subverting that sort of macho man expectation. And I, I kind of see why they went with it so effeminate, because it really is the antithesis of of what death face. I couldn't remember the name of the character's name. Death face. He, he is seen as this big macho man, gravelly voice character. You know, it's it is the antithesis. So if you're going to try and you know flip, flip the sort of view of that character, that's how you do it. But when you get characters talking about how this is sort of sick and gross, that's where for me it kind of takes the cake. That's honestly a pretty big hole in my argument I, because if the newscaster is saying it's sick, then it, that's supposed to be the objective voice and not the voice of his fans, right? So I don't know. I don't really have anything to say to that. That might make me rethink my position a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good point. Uh, yeah. Well, I, the only thing I guess for me, cause I agree with what you're saying, Adam, I, I do think he went a little too far with it and try to get into the mind of how it was in the nineties. Um, from what I remember and it, I kind of touched on it a little bit. I don't know if either of you guys watch friends back in like the nineties and the two thousands. I don't know how popular it was in Ireland. Um, <laughs> and there is a, there is a point to this, but essentially one of the like long-term jokes of this was one of the main characters father was 
a transsexual and it was used as a joke almost for 10 years and that was kind of something that was very common in the 90s like it was that was used as a butt of a joke it's not to say that's okay or they should have done that but I guess that kind of goes back to the point of if this was put in the 90s I guess you'd probably look at it a lot different than you would look at it now where it's a yeah if you when you look at it in a 2020 lens it's very yeah you probably shouldn't have went that far when it was if it was looked at in 1992 you'd be like okay yeah I got it cool yeah, like, and it's not it's not a defense for it. I've just if I'm trying to get in the headspace of he's trying to nostalgia the nineties and maybe try to get the 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 essence of what the nineties was, I guess you would I, I'm not saying you would have to, but I could see why he'd be like, Yeah, let's put that in there, because that was a common joke then. And like Chris said, maybe he just never matured out of that. And it could be a very good point not to defend it, just to Maybe from his point of view, that's why it was put in there like that to play devil's advocate. Yeah, because it's all well and good to say, oh, you know, this is a kind of joke that would have gone in the '90s. The film was made four years ago, so you know, it's it's not like we're right. we're talking about a '90s film right. retroactively. You know, that that would be a whole different conversation. Right, of course. If 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 that was the case, um, yeah. Again, I don't know enough about Bill Plimpton to to say if he's stuck in the '90s. I, I've never, I honestly, I'd never heard of him until. Um, until his collection came onto the channel, I'd never heard of the man. Maybe he's just more of a, because obviously, you know, what we would have seen on MTV and stuff over here in Ireland was more UK based rather than America based. So I would not have seen a lot of the stuff that you guys would have seen growing up. So um, I, I had no no prior sort of uh, history with Bill Plimpton. So again, could absolutely, I, I could be absolutely misreading it. And he's like a proper like gay rights advocate. I could be completely misreading it, but that was just what I took from it. Well, I definitely agree that I, even if his intention wasn't how it comes off, it was definitely executed. Not the way it should have ever been executed. Like you said, the newscaster part really what kind of hurts it a lot. Yeah. The, you know, there's another kind of underlying question here that I think I'd love to hear from you, although I think I know what you're going to say. Um, you know, why, why this film, right? Like, why? Like, what, like why make this film? Um, because I think that, you know, he, he's this big independent. I think some people even call him the godfather of indie animation. I could be off, but I think I've heard that label for him before. So in a lot of his stuff is self-financed. He goes and makes commercials to finance the films that he wants. Um, and, you know, of all the films that he's made, I think my biggest critique of this film, if I'm being totally honest and, and kind of joining you side for a second, is I could never really find the why for this. Like, it didn't feel like a personal story for him. It, did, it, it felt like he was trying to make a grindhouse picture and maybe didn't really have a strong voice in that genre. Maybe, maybe shouldn't have. I, I, I did never really could never get the why. I thought it was a fun film, but and, and I wanted to defend it just because you hated it so much. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, I, I probably won't watch it again. Honestly, I, I don't think I ever got the, the, the reason really, you know, the why for this. So I'd love to hear y'all's thought on that. Well, um. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I'll agree with you. I don't think he has an insanely strong voice in a noir setting, though I will say the animation at night when it was more like silhouette figures and stuff, I actually thought that was some of the stronger stuff in the whole movie. And I thought it was, uh, it, it, was a, it was a lot easier on the eyes than a lot of the in-color stuff, which it, it's, his, it's his style, so fair to him. Um, and I still like, the. it's a little charming no matter what, but the why of why he made it... Um, <laughs> he got me to be honest like i don't i don't feel like he had like a strong love for wrestling um i think he used it as a cool plot point uh i don't think he was super into noir i don't know his backstory but no um it almost just seemed like he just wanted to do it to do to, just to do it I, maybe he just wanted to run stimpy thing i don't know i'm gonna give uh, bill the benefit of the doubt and say it was all jim lujan's idea there you go <laughs> there you go God damn you, Jim. And your 42 credits on IMDb. He's almost got as many credits as reviews as this movie does on IMDb. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm, sorry for, I'm sorry if you're listening to this, Jim. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we can get Jim on next time to defend the, the, his position. I'll reach out. That's actually not a bad idea. You know what? I actually, I, I'm saying I'm saying it half jokingly, but I will reach out to Jim. I feel like he probably doesn't have a lot of followers. I'm sure if, we, if he heard we were just sitting here talking crap about his movie 
he might want to come on and defend his position a bit. I'll reach out to him on Twitter and see what he says. It'd be kind of cool, actually, to talk to him and hear what he has <laughs> I, to say. I would be interested to hear his, hear his, you know, his side of the story, I suppose. I would be interested to hear, you know, he will answer the why and maybe sort of account for some of the dicier parts of the film. I would be interested to hear his side of the story. So now we're into our final segment, which uh, is called Any Other Business. So we're just going to talk about some stuff that we we watched recently, just a, you know, a film or a show or something that we thought was really cool. We want to give a shout out. Um, I, I'm going to go first this time, guys, if you don't mind. Um, I, watched, I watched this film yesterday in, in prep for what I'm going to watch next week because I'm off work all of next week and it's the first time I've had a, you know, a, an extended period off work for a while. And I, I got um, Kobayashi's The Human Condition trilogy on Blu-ray uh, last week. And I'm thinking, like, these are three-hour-long films each. When am I going to have the time to crack into these? So I'm going to crack into these next week. I'm going to watch one a day because, you know, I want to be able to, to, to make it a bit more cohesive without watching other stuff in between. So in, in prep for that, I watched the Kobayashi film that I already owned on Blu-ray, but I hadn't actually watched. And this is Kwaidan. Uh, Quaidan is a, it's like a ghost anthology film. I don't really want to call it a horror film because it's not really all that scary, but it's definitely spooky. Um, it has a big connection with uh, with Ireland because, which you wouldn't expect from a Japanese movie, um, but the the collection of short stories that Quaidan is based on um, was actually gathered by an Irishman who went and, and lived in Japan, uh, Lafcadio Hearn, who has a Japanese garden named after him in a in a city that's only about. 20 minutes away from me so uh, i heard about that and i just had to jump into it and obviously in prep for the human condition quaidan's one three-hour film but it's split up into four stories seemed like a really good way to jump into this and the film is is just incredible i don't know if you guys have seen quaidan but i would highly recommend it it's just absolutely gorgeous it's all done on sound stages with hand-painted backdrops if you think like black narcissus those kind of hand-painted sort of um backgrounds of like the sky and stuff it's so meticulously well put together some stories are stronger than others some people like people most associate the the hoichi the yearless the one with the you probably see him on the posters with the japanese writing on his face that story is probably the most well associated with the film but it was actually my least favorite of the four funnily enough it went on a bit too long but that the four stories are all great in their own way they all have their own each sort of individual atmosphere and feeling and they're all self-encapsulated and they all sort of take place although it's all on the same soundstage they all take place in very different sort of locations and especially the second story which is all very snowy um the opening to that is incredible as these two guys trudge through this blizzard um but that, that film was really great and seeing kobayashi's style definitely really excited to watch the human condition next week uh, i'm gonna be i'm gonna be getting into all of those um but yeah quaidan I, I would highly recommend it i got the obviously criterion didn't release it here and I, I i was reading about this and i think criterion only have it on dvd i don't know if they've released it on blu-ray yet um in, in region a but I, eureka masters of cinema did a limited edition release during the summer in this nice big thick digipack with a really cool booklet that includes the short stories that were featured in the film although i have the book separate but all the short stories this one features the ones that are included with the film and it was limited edition it's all it's just they just have a standard blu-ray out now but um actually sorry i'm mixing that up human condition has a blu-ray or human condition doesn't have a blu-ray release from criterion quaidan does as far as i'm aware uh human yeah. condition actually is not the one with the blu-ray um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to Human Condition next week, and Quaidan was a really, really great film if you haven't seen it. I guess the one I'd like to recommend is a 2010 Hong Kong film, uh, Dream, House, Dream Home. A um, little bit of background for kind of why this movie was made. Um, the housing market in Hong Kong is pretty atrocious. People have a hard time finding flats to live in affordably. They're, they're just, their housing market is completely trash. People spit, you know, save up their whole life just to get a pretty small flat. Um, and so basically what the film does is it is essentially a slasher movie. It's a Hong Kong slasher movie. Um, and it intercuts these basically these two main stories of the girl going on this basically hour long rampage in this housing uh, complex she was not allowed to buy uh, for various reasons. And it intercuts with her struggles and kind of. 
doesn't justify why she does what she does, but it kind of put, you know, it's very different of, you know, unlike a lot of slasher styles of here's the initial kill. Here's the, the meat bags. We're going to see get killed for an hour and a half. And there's the end. This one is more in the perspective of her and why the person would go on to this length and why they would go to this much, um, ra- this much carnage and rampage. It's a very bloody film. It's very violent. Um, one thing I, th- and I, but I do think this structure was both helpful and harmful to it in the sense that it was necessary so we could understand why she would go to this length and, but where it kind of loses itself is it's a lot of flashbacks within flashbacks and the structure kind of falls apart a little bit in parts of it. But I do think it, it is an interesting talking point from a lot of struggles that they're dealing with in Hong Kong now. And when this film came out in 2008 with the housing crisis that they were, they were having just like the U S was. And I think the hardest thing that people have with this film that I've noticed is it kind of has that Serbian film problem where it may have something deeper to say, but it's so lost in its violence and its blood that you were almost like, was that really the point at the end of the day? But if you're looking for a fun slasher movie, it's one of the better ones I've seen in the last few years. I, I don't think Hong Kong movies get enough credit for some of the great stuff they put out and some of the very interesting stuff they put out. So that's one I'd recommend if people can find a copy of it. Is it as intense as a Serbian film? No, no, <laughs> it, it definitely has good, good gore and blood and stuff like that, but it never goes to that length. <laughs> okay. Um, so for mine, I, you know, it's just total coincidence, but I think it kind of actually ties into the discussion we're having with Revengeance a little bit. So uh, it's a movie by John Ford. Uh, bear with me, because there's not much that's going to connect those two ever. <laughs> but um, it's it's from 1920, let's call it 26. Apologies if I'm off by a year or two. But it's called Three Bad Men. And there's a, a lot of actually sort of characters that are very similar to Hidden Fortress characters. Uh, and it, I think it actually, from a story perspective, I would be shocked if Kurosawa didn't pull a little bit from from this. Because it's just... It's a, it's a woman who's kind of supported by this gang, a misfits who turns out to have a heart of gold. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a well-made movie. Like it's a good story and it's interesting and it has to do with the gold rush in the U S but it is super racist. Like, you know, and it's even more apparent that it's racist because it has intertitles that like show how racist it is. And it's, it's just uncomfortable, right? Like there's this tension, I think with these movies that were made in the twenties and, and then maybe even in 2016 in Bill Plumpton's case, but like some of these older movies where like, what do you do with that as a viewer? Like I, it, I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with that a little bit. Like it's a, it's a good movie, right? Like it's a sweet story about these three, you know, criminals that, that find themselves and find a redemptive story through this woman who uh, her, basically her dad dies right before this gold rush happens. And, and they sort of take her under her wing and like, there's never any ill intent towards this young woman from them. They're just, like three father figures to her and they do a great job. Like it's like three men and a baby sort of, <laughs> except not at all, but um, they, you, you never feel anything but like a paternal love towards this young woman. And it's really sweet. And at the same time, there's just incredibly direct oppressive racism uh, towards uh, specifically Italians and, and Spaniards and, uh, and Chinese people. It's, I, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, it's interesting. I don't really know what to do with that, but um it, it's really got me kind of thinking about it. Watching Revengeance and then this, just by coincidence, so close together, um, has made me kind of be, you know, I've been wrestling with this the last few days. Well, I don't know how uh, popular Gone with the Wind is in Ireland for Adam, but I guess for me and you, Chris, that's something we're kind of seeing with Gone with the Wind, right? Like the idea yeah. of where, where do you put the separation? Do you, is it just as easy as saying, well, that was just part of the time and still putting it as, you know, can you put it in your list of greatest movies of all time? Can you do that and still separate like, yeah, there was some problematic stuff 70, 80 years ago for sure. Yeah, actually, funnily enough, I only watched Gone with the Wind pretty recently. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah, um, my, my girlfriend made me watch it. Uh, and I actually pretty much enjoyed it for for the most part. I thought it was a thought it was a good film. Again, another film with really gorgeous backdrops oh, and set absolutely. design. Um 
yeah, there's a lot of problematic stuff. And I, we could probably spend an hour talking about the pros and cons of taking films, you know, as products of their time. Um, but yeah, sometimes I, I get you. It's, it's definitely uncomfortable, you know, when you watch older stuff and, you know, it is very overtly, you know, racist or, what, you know, homophobic or whatever it may be. Uh, it definitely it can leave a sour taste in your mouth sometimes. But I always, for, for me, I always try and just sort of take it either well, for talking about a particular film that maybe has dicey moments, but for the most part, it's not actually really, a, you know, it's not like a film about racists. There just happens yeah. to be racist moments. I tend to try and take those films, you know, as products of their time. Same with like, you know, something like a Roman Polanski film or a Woody Allen film. Oh. You know, I'm going to I'm going to just take those as the film. I'm going to try and separate the, the art from the artist there. Um, and I always try and do that unless you have something like, you know, intolerance, you know, where it's literally just KKK guys were riding around for three hours, you know, um, birth of a nation. <laughs> yeah. Birth of, sorry. Yeah. Birth of a nation, not intolerance. My apologies. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Whatever D.W. Griffith, Griffith film it was where it's just all about how great the KKK are. That's that's another story altogether. And I suppose even then, I suppose some films can have their artistic merits more so than their moral merits. But uh, yeah, so we could we could do a whole other podcast on that one, I would say. And that wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. You can catch uh, me, Chris and Zach on our Letterboxd or Reddit accounts, uh, the links of which will be in the description. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at They Live By Film. Until next time, take care.